0: I'm Tara Poole and this is The Lost Ones. The Lost Ones Gallery in Ballarat is a contemporary art gallery and a space for creative makers. We're based in a glorious Masonic temple, right in the heart of Heritage Ballarat. We host exhibitions year-round, celebrating the talent and passion of artists from around Australia and internationally. We run workshops and information sessions for those who are interested in learning a new skill or beginning a new creative direction. Welcome to our first podcast. This is part of an occasional series that looks at the stories behind the artists we exhibit and we explore how their art touches the lives of the people in the region in which we're based, Ballarat, Western Victoria. This podcast is taking a look at the work of exhibiting artist, Sophie Munns. Hailing from Queensland, for this exhibition, Sophie has swapped the humid climes of Northern Cook, Australia, to explore the environment of Victoria. Sophie's always been inspired by the beauty and complexity of seeds of Australian native plants. Her inspiration has led her to seed banks and the scientists who manage them, the documenters of the seeds. But Sophie is not a botanical artist. She's a force and a passion. She creates massive volumes of works that are rich and inspiring. This podcast is a panel discussion We held it in early April 2016, and Sophie was joined on the panel by Belinda Coates, the Deputy Mayor for Ballarat, Dan Frost from Seeding Victoria, it's our own local seed bank, and Matt Pywell, the owner and operator of Ballarat Wild Plants. Oh, and a note, this discussion was recorded in the main gallery of The Lost Ones, so our sound is not entirely perfect. We do hope you enjoy the conversation. Make some time, visit Sophie's show before it closes on the 24th of April. I'm going to start off by asking you each to go around the table to introduce yourself, say your full name, and where you're from and what you do. Sophie, I'm going to start
1: with you, if that's okay? Yes. Okay. I'm Sophie Mullins, and I, was grow- I grew up in Grafton, actually, northern New South Wales, but I've lived between Melbourne and Brisbane, and I'm currently in mm-hmm. Brisbane. And you I do? paint. I've been painting for a very long time. Uh, But in the last seven years, I've been really focused on seeds, which um, was just something that I felt was a way of finding a, a relationship to the environment that made sense to me as an artist, but has ended up leading me into the most exciting projects and meeting so many different kinds of people. So it's been fascinating. Thank you. I'm Belinda Coates. I'm the Deputy Mayor of the City of
2: Ballarat. Counsellor there, I'm a Greens counsellor, and I pretty much just love the environment and nature and I'm fascinated with, um, with everything about it. If I had if I had another life and a chance to choose my profession again, I think I might choose science. <laughs> <inside> <laughs> so we were at the market the other day and I saw the perfect one. It was very small and antique and nifty, and I would have bought it if. I'm <laughs> sorry.
3: <laughs>
0: Okay, well, so we've got a pretty esteemed panel today to discuss the nexus between art and science and the work of seed banks, and, and particularly focusing around Sophie Munn's, our exhibiting artist's wonderful collection called Seed Art Lab, which we have on exhibition at the Lost Ones till the end of the month. So the work of seed banks, pretty much, we're all in agreement around this panel that they're crucial to the welfare of human society. They help our ecosystem function they provide us with, obviously with oxygen, but everything from medicines, clothing, fibres, obviously food. But out of only 7,000 species of plants currently used for agriculture, only 30 crops make up the world's diet. Seeds are convenient use of long-term storage of genetic diversity, as obviously they're small, they're easily handled, require pretty much low maintenance, and remain frequently can remain viable for long periods, in many cases indefinitely. But seed banks take up equally little space, but that can be expensive to run, um, both because they need low temperatures, there's testing, there's all sorts of scientific work behind the scenes, and growth trials and regeneration is part of their work. Few know about the existence of seed banks, and little is known about what happens behind the scenes of a seed bank, and that's why Sophie's work is so important. So Sophie, could you kick us off and explain to us the impetus and the inspiration for
1: why you started working with seeds hmm. well I have always drawn seeds I always loved picking up seeds and collecting the seed pods and so on and living in a, a subtropical region of northern New South Wales it was very easy to be walking around and finding things all the time but I moved around moved in different places and I found myself uh I was living in Melbourne for about 12 years and I started to re- really miss the environment of the North. And funnily enough, when I ended up back living in Brisbane, the whole thing about seeds came back to me. And I had been looking for a way of finding a focus that would um, bring environment, the environment and nature into my work. And I told a few people I was going to start a seed project. And the next thing somebody said, have you heard about the seed lab of the botanic gardens? and you should go and talk to the people there. So I contacted them and the guy said to me, well, why don't you come and help volunteer? You know, volunteer. And I thought, well, I have not thought of that, but okay. And once I started going there, I wasn't going very often. It was only a couple of, every couple of weeks for a day. The stories, there are lots of people coming in regularly to volunteer. So there was a lot of knowledge in the room at any one time. And so even if the seed technician, Jason, was particularly busy, there was always other people telling stories and explaining work, and there was connection with Greening Australia and all kinds of different local nurseries, and, and then there was the connection, the person that the organisation that funded that seed lab was the Millennium Seed Bank from Kew Gardens. So I just had this massive introduction to a world that I was always, already fascinated by, and um, heard about a residency going at the Botanic Gardens the following year, put together a project. And it was highly competitive, but I was really excited that they decided to choose the project, which I named Homage to the Seed, because they realized nobody knew it was a seed lab. And so they thought, well, here's a one that's gonna put a focus on seeds and on what this work is about. So that's where it kick started. Wow, well, and you've been doing it ever since? Ever since, especially, I, I, have, I often tell people this, I was tra- um, various people came up to me in that year that I was on residency. They wrote to me, sent emails, or they walked up to me in some public situation and said, how can you work with those evil people? And I was thinking, which, which evil people are these? And I started to think, and I used to go back to Jason, who was working in a very low tech way and collecting seeds on organized trips to various parts of Queensland, and I used to think, so I, you know, like, how is the public perceiving this to be evil work? And then I just thought, well, there's a job, you know. The public actually doesn't know what's going on with this saving seeds from the habitat. Right. And they're very confused, obviously, if they feel that this is being done for terrible reasons. So, I, you know, that really pushed me on much more of an education tangent. Wow. Than I would have necessarily So you see thought. your
0: work as... How much would you see it as being artistic and how much would you see it as being educational?
1: Uh, Plenty of, uh, look. a lot of hours go to education because I've been brought into schools and projects and many residencies and larger residencies. So I often end up doing a lot of writing, research, I document, I don't just talk to scientists, I will talk to people working in organisations, you know, like some of you guys here. Uh, And I'm always collecting information. Mm. and the stories because stories that connect to people in the community are really important because mm. the perception is like the one about the evil, the seed people. You know, they, that's what happens. If people don't know, then some story circulates and then that's what they end up thinking.
0: So, Dan, so. Is, that, is that true in your experience that people actually don't understand seed banks to such a point that they actually think the work you're doing is evil?
3: Uh, I've heard this.
0: The seed bank for you at Seeding in Victoria, which is just in Creswick, which I must admit didn't even know I didn't, didn't even know it existed. So I'm a perfect example, of somebody who had no idea of the, the fact that this was actually even in the local area. You you both collect and sell the seed, so you're almost a, a, an enterprise, as yes. well as doing research.
3: We do collect some, yeah. We yeah. generally rely on other collectors supplying us. Right. We house the seed for them and test it. Then it's catalogued so the general public can buy it. Um, who buys it? general public could be landholders mm-hmm. or nurserymen who in turn might want to sell it to the public, but uh, uh, largely speaking, most of our work is for large seed lots for direct seeding, mm-hmm. and that is through government agencies.
0: So you only work with endemic plants around the Creswick Nullarites region, or you also work with agricultural?
3: Uh, No, not agricultural, although there are a couple of species we work with that are not
0: And um, it's a, the, you were sort of saying before about the different types of people who are buying them. So, uh, if landholders are purchasing them, are they purchasing them because of um, they've got areas of land that they need to revegetate through yeah. just degradation, or
3: yes, probably a range of reasons. Some of them are proactive and would we'll want to revegetate certain areas, certainly areas that are um, not producing very well, um, say eroded areas or. The Rocky areas and such, maybe where rabbits are or something like that, yeah, they might get in there. But uh, there's also people who might knock over a few trees and uh, get a fine, and they might need to revegetate the area with certainly indigenous trees.
0: And that's a neat segue into talking to Belinda about that. So you're <laughs> <laughs> representing the council. So you issue fines to landholders who've got problems and they need to revegetate have they knock down trees that they shouldn't have done? Or-
2: as well and mm-hmm. so that's something that people can get actively involved in and can it's I ask it, when, you know, what date that is? Yeah it's um we've got a couple across the region so there's one in that in I'll I'll need to actually look at my look at my diary to double check but um, it's it's somewhere around the 15th between the 15th and 18th of April and we've got a few across the region so mm-hmm. we've got one here locally in north. In and how
0: much and is that as encouraging endemic plants or is it just encouraging green corridors? Because obviously you can go your agapanthus route or you can go a traditional native grass.
2: grass. Uh, very much looking at biodiversity and, yeah. and indigenous plants and, and species where, where it's, it's appropriate and it's the same with our we've got a really key role in the city um, in promotion and education bringing people together we, we can't do it all ourselves but we really want to bring the community in and bring in the expertise and that's um, that's a really good role that local mm-hmm. councils can play so um, when it
0: comes to things like um, the I suppose the, the ecosystem around Ballarat I mean it's obviously had an enormous amount of Oh, agriculture. There's been goldfields here. There's been, you know, white communities coming in and, and essentially flattening it and then leaving again. Um, I mean, our the ecosystem here, you know, to the outside external eye, obviously is a bit squished by agricultural overuse as well, and now with development from, you know, um, with growth in the city. Um, this is probably a crossover, I suppose, into the work that you do as well, Matt, about trying to encourage local people to plant what's native to them? I mean, what was your inspiration for starting Bavarate Wild plants?
4: I think it was a lack of supply. We originally started as a contracting business to do revegetation works. And who were you working products. for then? I was private, private landholders as well yes. as people like catchment management authorities. And we just found that the range of local plants weren't available. And they were
0: actually you know, looking for those, that local endemic plants. So I have to say, as a local yeah. landowner, I have exactly the same concern. <laughs> yeah.
4: Um, yeah, we just found that the diversity wasn't there so we would research what plants should go into an area to re it and it weren't available. So yeah. to fill in the time between contracts, I took over a block and started trying to grow my own. Right. And larger scale in the backyard, of the course, and just sort of grow from there.
0: That's unintended. No. no <laughs> <laughs> so you've gone from... Basically, a needs-based analysis. We've gone. I can't access these myself. Were you not aware that there was a sitting tutorial, or was there a sitting tutorial? There was a bank.
4: The nurseries were going for more general spaces. Yeah. So standing things, they can sell ten or twenty thousand plants of each year, yeah. and they just grow the same things over and over. On. Whereas we're concentrating on trying to get a more diversity So we grow everything from small lilies and grasses and daisies and ground covers and things up to the because I understand that this
0: part of Victoria's actually got some quite rare orchids, ground level orchids.
4: Yeah. It has, yeah, we haven't mastered growing orchids. Right. Uh, there's a lot of legal, legal information for the orchids as well. Right. They're, they're classed separately. So Even
0: in the small native ones that are rare and yeah. endangered. So if you have them, you look after them.
4: But we're actually not allowed to, we've just salvaged some off, off subdivisions when people grow things, growing them. We're not, not actually allowed to sell those, So it's to, to have, have the wrong we <laughs> to sell them. So
0: my question is to both of you, you know, do you think of your work as an art form? <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, I think as hard work generally. And why is that? It's Just... pretty continuous and quite often there's no great reward. Um you're working isolation a great deal. I know that that quite a bit. He's a small business, so um, he would work generally in isolation, um, talking to his plants. I hope not too much, but <laughs> <laughs> I certainly don't try to talk to the seeds. Uh, but, um, I mean, the seed bank runs at the moment, it's uh, 0.8 uh, a week position, so there's myself and another guy part-time. That's a very
0: precise number.
3: 0.8. <laughs> 0.8. Four days a week, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah, so I um, don't see it as an art form, although it is, I mean, you can see art within it, I'm sure. Like, uh, for instance, the germination tests that I do have a lot of uh, different moulds on like, like Oh, yeah. I like changes, them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you explain explain you to us the about here, the moulds, Sophie. Oh, done. done.
0: She's no, done. No, I I Sophie's I, I think opening I up her illustration book now that's. Um,
1: Oh, yeah, there's a few moulds on this. Actually, what I found was every time I went and found that they're just little petri dishes yeah. with some pasturnia seeds that were all failing. So it's a highly endangered species. And, um, and it was just fascinating. I always find all the really mouldy things because they're so interesting to draw and photograph. But the scientists go, oh, don't do them, you know, they're <laughs> they failed. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, yeah. like and then they start to talk about it a bit more, and they you know explain why they're doing all the different trials. And... Mm. But you do work at that level; you're doing a lot of that. We do germination tests yeah.
3: for very large batches before it goes out to make sure that it's going to grow in the field, yes, or in, or in its application anyway. So that, um, well, basically because we have a, um, a commodity for sale, to send it all out and. Not have it grow, it comes back to us, so we know it does grow. Yes, it, it that's quality assurance for you. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. And, and in the time that you guys have been doing your both of your operations, have you noticed that people like the community has changed the kind of questions they're asking or the seeds that they're asking for? Um, go
3: I for think, it, man. Yeah, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah? Uh, when I know
4: when we started the nursery, people were just after the general species, so I was the only one really recognising you know, those smaller species.
1: What, can I ask, not being from here, what is a general species for around here? I'd say
4: you use leeks, so you gums and wattles and things people can use as farm trees right. for shelter. That's the most popular items. For so, okay, but over time they start asking for. That's it. Uh, yeah, we used to grow the, the small, more decorative species, thinking they'd be good for gardens. Yes. And they'd have be been sold. Mm. Um, but now it's starting to
1: change. I couldn't remember from having lived in Melbourne many years ago. And um, I was thinking, are there any Indigenous species in the Botanic Gardens? Because as so I looked around, I couldn't yeah. see anything until
2: I went across to the lake or wetlands. Or That's right. You've started some of the work there. So, yeah, I, I can talk about that.
0: Because I think that would yes. make it, that yeah. would be why people would ask. Because we're swinging back. Yeah. There's,
2: there's a swing back. And why, why, is that,
0: why has that been driven? How has that been driven? Is it been driven through the community or has it actually been led by the council?
2: So the, the friends of the botanical gardens are, are really sort of looking quite broadly and looking at, well, where's, where's best practice for botanical gardens? And so they're, they're looking to some of the, um, some of the other cities towards that conservation and education element
0: of it, that that's a, a really core and fundamental purpose of botanical governance. Mm. So, do you yeah. think that's maybe happening? Because I recollect in even recent history that Lake like, Wenderee dried out. I mean, it is a wetland, it dries out, that's what yeah. it does, it's climatic and it's cyclical. But there was a lot of reaction against the fact that it had dried out. And there was, if I remember correctly, a campaign to pump stormwater into the lake to artificially inflate it again. Um,
2: That's right. <laughs> so so it's, be, it's been an ongoing issue and, and so, um, yeah, looking at the reason for that, it's so a changing climate, that we, we're living in a warmer and drier climate and, and something like the the Lake Lake Wintry, which is um, it was originally a swamp wetlands but a, a lake was created there but it's mm. a very shallow lake mm. and so that's a very um, a very clear litmus test of the clim- changing climate mm. so, um, so so the solutions around that kind of came to a I guess a bit of a middle ground in that the, the um, it's it's being
0: The local, you're saying around certain parts of the lake now that there are more endemic native plants yeah. being planted out to as a test or as, as, as no, a... No, it's
2: part of a long term strategy so we've adopted uh, an urban forestry approach which is, is looking at greening the city and it's very much um, grounded in in principles of you need to have good biodiversity and that's not excluding exotic species but, but it's very <laughs> that's right, that's right. And look at the, in, in a changing climate, again, that sometimes the, the exotic species might be more suitable or they might provide benefits like shading and, and cooling too. Mm. Mm-hmm. But we absolutely want to preserve and encourage and um, foster that education and mm.
0: conservation. In our so Sophie, obviously just on the back of mentioning climate change. Do you feel that the work that you're doing, obviously you've done it over several years? Have you noticed a change in attitudes amongst the scientists in which you work with concerning issues around retention of seeds and climate change, or is there a debate which we're here that you know out in the more public domain that climate change is not either not real or not caused by humans? Oh, I
1: have never met anyone in any working scientist? in a seed lab or a plant bank or any of these places who don't think climate change is not you know isn't? making a huge impact already. And, you know, I, I remember the first time I went into that small seed lab in Brisbane and was talking with the seed technician. He said, um, it, Queensland had had some very bad drought years um, before 2009. And he was going to regions in Queensland, bringing back collections. And then, you know, all the people that were coming in and help, helping process the seeds, they were just finding most of the seeds weren't viable. And so, you know, for me, I was a bit naive, and I was like, "What is it, the difference between them?" You know, I went back to SpaceX. I went back to kindergarten, explained viable seeds and non-viable, and you know. And so he was basically saying you could be in a region and you could see all this, all the trees, and you know, it looked like there was a lot happening and everything was managing okay, relatively speaking, in the drought. But when you have no viable seeds. And that's caused by drought. It just makes me think, okay, well, with climate change and increased heat, how you know how is that impacting the future of the trees all around the countryside? Mm-hmm. You know, the public drives by on their holiday and goes, "Oh, it looks okay around here." <laughs> but you know if the seed scientists are telling you that they're not viable, you know, bringing in all these seeds back and testing them. and then to me that seems quite shocking, so I don't meet any people working in that area who aren't extremely concerned concerned, and most of the time they're just busy going going about their work and they have their deadlines and everything that they need to do and they do a lot of education but they just also have projects and dates that everything has to be done by so it's only on the moments where you might be standing in the lab and i mentioned recently in sydney I've gone for a drive through an area that once was very rural and now it was just all housing development. And then they started, like, three different seed scientists were in the room and they just started, like, really an outpouring of grief because they were sort of saying, well, you know, some people think that there's 95% of that habitat gone and some people think it's now down to 99%. There's no real agreement on what percentage, but we're talking so close to it all being gone, it's ridiculous. And then that leads to other conversations. So people that they sometimes work with who may work for a council, they might be doing um, monitoring work, they might, you know, in all the different jobs that people might have. Well, things like they've lost their vehicles, they can't go out into the landscape and monitor what's going on like they used to maybe money has run out or they've found that in 2015-2016 nobody wants to hear what their reports are so their reports are killed mm. so there's this whole layer of people who were working in the last i don't know more and more in the last 30 years in the environmental protection area who are now either being pushed out or not you know they're not funded or they're just not being listened to mm. and so that's why I think there was so much grief because there they are working away on projects that they're not seeing it reinforced in other organisations and they're just seeing development being allowed to just squash everything. So they get extremely worried at that point Yeah. because dire know. predictions. Yeah.
2: What, what is interesting though too what is starting to emerge is that movement around citizen science and um, whether it's in Communities or in forests where where people are getting interested and passionate about what's happening in their local area and, and documenting it mm. too. That that's a really I think um, it is a growth area. I mean, certainly yeah. you
0: notice that things like the ABC track the backyard life uh, wildlife and they encourage mm. people to. You know, log the animals that they see, and I think we're probably a way away from logging the plants they see. Oh no, out. they do that. on The Living Atlas yes. of Australia. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. So yeah. I just looked
1: up my postcode one day in Brisbane in the suburb, and um, and named every plant and every species that you know, like that existed around there. It was just so amazingly have responsive. You heard about to. the Living Atlas at all? Yeah.
0: You have. I mean, what about the um, here in Ballarat? Do you think what's what's the diversity looking like?
4: Checked it out. I don't use it that way. So, <laughs> How do you use uh, it? Do you use it? I'm looking for a species or if we get uh, a landscape designer or somebody might recommend a range of plants for a project we're involved in. Mm-hmm. If there's one that I'm not familiar with... Does that an often, like,
0: often? A developer contacts you and says I want a plant that you don't
4: know yes. about? Uh, yeah, because we have designers in Melbourne. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so we've got a good relationship with some of the local contractors and, and designers. Mm-hmm. and even okay. working with the council at the moment on mm-hmm. a project that's my start where we get to go through the list and cross everything's going to off and replace it with things that are more local That's, that's so fair, that's fair. fair yeah. right? it's, yeah, it's sort of a, a feeling of accomplishment I guess that we've got to a mm. point where we're trusted by the people in the glass house or at council mm. they trust my judgement on, on what should be here and what shouldn't mm-hmm. but yeah, I do I do doubt myself to the point whether, it's, whether it really does occur here whether it is as
0: far away as well that it, is. Oh, it certainly sounds like something that I'm going to get involved in and start logging plants and, and documenting them because it's, um... so I think that's uh, also a sense of powerlessness I think that a lot of community members feel, you know you can be bombarded as a community member with the idea of climate change it's also big, I can't do anything about it, you know, mm. it's got nothing to do with me and my little change isn't going to make any difference so things like that is obviously really important to encourage community member to understand that they can actually do something even yeah. if it's in their small literal backyard but then they can also do things like i suppose come and have a look at this exhibition and <laughs> <laughs> get a bit worded up on on the work that sophie does and um and understand a little bit more about obviously sitting victoria and matt so i'd like to thank you all so much for taking part in this of our first of hopefully many um, panel discussions about various issues and um
1: Thanks Matt, thanks Dan, thanks Belinda, and thanks
0: Sophie. Sophie. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Charlie. Sophie Munzer's show is on at the Lost Ones Gallery from the sixth of April through to the twenty fourth of April, twenty sixteen. Come on and let us know your thoughts. This was our first podcast, and we sincerely enjoyed our first discussion. Do let us know if you'd like to hear more from the Lost Ones. The Lost Ones podcast is produced by Stephen Piggott and myself with support from our gallery and workshop coordinator, Meryn Brody. We'll be signing off today with an original track, For Emma, performed by local duo Siobhan Fearon and Jeremy Rowe. Enjoy.
5: There's a cry for my sister. A oh, farewell, my sister, in the morning light. I'm loving you so. I count my blessings when you come to stay. I'll be. Since when you